It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Lisa Hathaway is a musician, climbing legend, and dear friend of the pod. She lives in Moab, where she executes her mission to crimp every damn day. I was on this thing called the internet, and um, I happened to peruse a web browser, and I saw that the BLM has posted a reward, not ransom, for a nefarious individual who we're going to talk about tonight. This person has defiled and defaced our beloved Big Ben boulders. And um, if you know who this person is, you can claim $1,000 from the BLM. So do you guys know who it is? I think it was the Friends of Indian Creek. Because I don't think, first of all, I don't think it was one person. Nobody does something like this all by themselves. Mm. It's like a group. And I think it was the Friends of Indian Creek to to try to get, make themselves relevant and raise money. Mm. Well, That's my theory. Do you think that they're going to raise more than $1,000? <laughs> they can now turn themselves in. They can pick one of their members to turn in and sacrifice for that for that grand. I mean, I think logically I would probably be the culprit in that case because lately I've been rolling up to Big Bend and it's just kind of this known thing that the parking space closest to the boulders is mine. (laughs) And there's just been like this violent coup that's been going on recently. I had considered abdication of the throne of, um, you know, the ruler of Big Bend, but lately I've been noticing there's some upstarts trying to take my parking spot. So I was just like, yeah, if I can't have front row parking, nobody's climbing on the Big Bend black box traverse. There we go. That's how it's gone down. Okay. So this is how we're going to get $1,000, Chris, is we're going to edit out that one little clip. We'll send it. Right. We'll send it to the BLM and be like, we've caught her. We tricked her into confessing. Yep. (laughs) Sorry, Lisa. I owe at least at least a thousand dollars in back rent. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> if Anyhow, everyone let's... who owed me a thousand dollars in back rent paid up, I could probably build a house that is almost as nice as some of the people who used to live in my driveways current houses. <laughs> um but yeah, so the reason we've we've besides joking around with our our old friend Lisa, uh, we've brought her on to talk about the Grease Gate. So can you actually uh, fill the listeners who aren't local to uh, you know Utah and Western Colorado in on what Grease Gate is and what exactly went down at the Big Bend Boulders that um, have occasioned this interview? Yeah, I mean, Grease Gate's kind of um, an unfortunate moniker and hashtag that I stupidly assigned to this whole disastrous situation. <laughs> but um, a couple weeks ago, some people went out to Big Bend during this fabulous weather spell we'd had for like six or eight weeks, January into February, and showed up at the boulders and found what looks to be or looked to be axle grease smeared like cream cheese on a bagel um, on a bunch of problems at Big Bend. And so, of course, word got out really quickly. And we went out there and sure enough, on three or four, depending on on how you look at it, problems, there was just grease smeared in what appears to not be 
a random way. So it appears that it was at least someone who is um, familiar with climbing and with certain problems at Big Bend. Really? So it wasn't a random act of greasing. It was a hate grease. I I think it was either um, some kind of disturbed greasing. Yes. Um, there was definitely, if you know Big Bend and you know the problems, and for example, you think, oh, I'm going to do uh, the black box traverse, and you go look at every single hold that you would use on that problem up to a certain height and to a certain point on the boulder, and they were all well greased. So it was like... right. So it someone looked, knew which parts to grease to ruin the actual problem in, in the hand in the specific handholds. Yeah. And subsequently it also like in that particular problem, it also ruined like all the warm-ups on that boulder. So the black box boulder is this uh boulder that's black and gets full sun and has a very vertical face with reasonable for big bend crimp problems on it. So it looks like someone just like went across the boulder from left to right smearing grease on these problems but if you know the variations a little bit more it's like this is basically the black box traverse and Mm -hmm. all the handholds that you would use in some of the footholds Mm. and then the um the footholds basically for um, the phantom fighter for the low start not the original phantom fighter but the sit start and the starting holds for the original Phantom Fighter, the starting handholds, and then the auxiliary footholds out left. And then there's this boulder called the Punisher boulder, which has um, a pretty popular problem on it. And it's uh, two problems that basically got greased or two variations that got greased on that one. So it seems like if we can identify the person who can't do those four or five problems that you just named, then we have our list of suspects. I don't think it's the person who can't do them, hmm. but um, I, I, those kind it of things. Like you, it sounds like you have a theory, but we'll, we'll get, we'll maybe get back to that. Wait, before I we have a theory, before we get I'm to a- that, can we, can I just, um, can we just admire something for one second? Our mutual friend uh, and loved friend, Steph Davis I first learned about the story through her Instagram and she posted a video. You were in the video too, Lisa, where you guys were out at the boulders and just kind of, huh, what's going on with this? But it was this very typically non plus Steph Davis tone of, well, that's interesting. <laughs> Instead of like, what the fuck is this shit on our boulders? You know, like I would have been outraged and screaming, but um, Steph had we this very, too- very, uh, you know, non plus demeanor. I think we were just too shocked. You know, I think it was just kind of like, it was quite stunning because you're like, I literally, like, I can't really be seeing this, can I? And obviously the three of us have been around long enough to have, you know, know the stories of um, older school climbers smearing Vaseline in cracks to keep other people off their projects. Or we've heard tons of stories in our day, but... um some kind of mechanical grease, let's just call it axle grease for convenience, just smeared generously all over these holds. It's just like, huh? It was a lot of grease. It was like... A lot of grease. Yeah. A lot of grease. Yeah. I mean, you could see in that video, I think, the one, I'm not sure which one Steph posted, but 
you could just see there was like someone was like scooping and scooping. And if it was random, I feel like it would have been maybe just like smeared all over the face more, not on these like really like designated holds and maybe just like more randomly. Yeah. No, I mean, this is interesting because I, I figured, you know, some gearheads camped across the way, saw the little climbers dancing about and, uh, you know, afterwards came over and just like threw some grease on there to be dickheads. Um, because, yeah. you know, I just was like, who, who has well, axle that- grease? But it sounds like it was a climber, which means that it was premeditated to the point of bringing the grease there to specifically do this. When I just assume like somebody's got his, his rock crawl over there. So he's got that kind of stuff and, and came over and just like a, more of a vandalism type thing from outside the community. But it sounds like it was somebody in the community then, um, well, a yeah. climber. I mean, I'm not going to say I think it's a climber. I have phrased it as I think it is someone who had fairly intimate knowledge of those climbs or thought they did. But we also, like you said, premeditated. It probably was premeditated in the sense that currently there's absolutely no chatter whatsoever about like, oh, I saw this suspicious situation where like this guy got really pissed because... His girlfriend sent the black box traverse and the Phantom Fighter <laughs> low start and blankety blank before he could. And so, no, she was like one move away on all these things and closer than him. So he went and greased it so she couldn't do it before him. No, I mean. Right. <laughs> it's a theory. But I mean, it's theory. funny because we are, we are using the pronoun he because there's there's basically no doubt in my mind that it's a he or a group of he's there. I just. I don't know. That's probably like reverse sexism, but I'm just like, no, this is some dude. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to make that. I'm not going to make that leap because we just obviously like, you know, I fashion myself as like a recreational profiler and I'm always like looking at people at the crag. I'm like, oh, okay. So that guy, this is his issue with his mom. But um, (laughs) I have my theories. (laughs) But they have absolutely no basis in any facts other than right. i don't think it was random and like you said it's grease so i mean this is like so, you know relatively soft sandstone and i imagine cleaning it off has been a nightmare to it's just like so porous and stuff i'd imagine it just kind of has some residual grease to it what's the what's the status of the cleaning efforts is it returning to normal or not in a way it is and in a way it's not there was a gal from our local community who went out right away and wiped a bunch of the grease off and started cleaning it with baking soda and water, which seemed to be pretty effective to get the first, just like the significant amounts of grease off. But it definitely has penetrated the rock. And we've gone out a couple times since and we're kind of trying to take like a slow jam approach in that we don't want to do worse damage because like as you said it's very porous sandstone it's also kind of fragile rock and nobody wants to break any holds i mean i've got enough broken big bend holds in my living room i don't need any more especially reeking of some kind of mechanical or petroleum product so we've been trying to just like do it in slow steps to see what works and we saw friends of indian creek and the local community sought advice from some of the other LCOs to see what what they've done in situations like this and 
oddly enough, it's kind of a unique situation. People have had to deal with petroleum products, but no one's actually had to deal with petroleum on climbing holds on soft sandstone. So we're kind of on-siting it and trying to get any any beta and suggestions that are out there. And thanks to everybody, if anyone's listening, who has offered up suggestions, we have like really read and considered all of the various different things from using brake cleaner to diatomaceous earth to bentonite clay. And of course, Dawn gets the Dawn gets the grease out and, you know, they use it on the little birds in Alaska. And when Exxon destroys some other, when they break some other pipe and cover bunches of birds with petroleum. So it's not done. Yeah, that's crazy. I was just kind of thinking back to the past year and a half or so, and there's been a number of kind of vandal vandalism stories in the climbing world that have kind of percolated out of Utah um, in the last year. There was the guy who, you know, quote unquote, accidentally bolted the petroglyphs. And then there was the, there were the petroglyphs that were kind of defaced with some racist graffiti or something like that. Obviously, I don't think they're connected, but um, it is just interesting to just hear these these kind of like really tragic stories coming out of just one area of the country. And maybe there's more that I just haven't been paying attention to. But yeah, I don't know if if what's if there's something to be said about the Utah climbing scene or what, what you, how you would respond to that idea. You know, it just seems like they were fairly isolated and far between. Um, the, the I think you're talking about the birthing rock petroglyph yeah, that um, was it. defacement that was on Cane Creek Road. And I don't know if um, that has been resolved yet as far as who um, the perpetrators of that act were. But there's just a, there's a lot of people in, in sometimes small areas and... You know, you just don't know when when the bad actors are going to pop up and what they're going to do. Yeah. And then there's that other story about those guys who went to Goblin Valley and knocked over all the, the hoodoos. Uh, do you remember that the one? The Boy Chris? Scout leaders? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The guy was literally a Boy Scout leader. Yeah. He got, just... he got, um, yeah, because he put it on, he put it online and so he got fined, uh, arrested and fined for that anyway. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about the the wilderness in Utah. I think that makes people go crazy and want to. We also just, forgot like, break about the rocks. The, we didn't mention the removal of the of the, the uh, obelisk the as well. The obelisk. <laughs> the right. obelisk. <laughs> but that wasn't like a natural defacement. <laughs> no, I know, yeah. but still, it's some, I think it's all connected. It's all happening drawing, in Utah. It is. I'm drawing, a, I've got mentality. a big, You guys can't see it because my camera's faced the other way, but I've got this huge map of utah with strings and clippings from newspapers and the whole thing yeah. connecting oh. all these people you're so a profiler I'm, I'm too to the yeah exactly yeah and a so, can- candlelit um, shrine to uh sketchy andy yeah but the, but the night <laughs> he's he's like uh he's like suspect number one but uh the the thing i actually ha- has been nice is that like nobody flew off the handle in the climbing world and started like posting psas about how you're not supposed to put grease on holds, you know, like we didn't have to have some sort of summit where we all had our collective agreements that putting grease on holds was bad and that we should have a huge education campaign about not greasing holds in the, uh, in the climbing community (laughs) that, you know, 
that permeated our social media for six weeks. Right. Um, it, it seems like everybody seemed to understand that this one was an isolated jackass um, that we don't need to have like education, you know, pamphlets about not greasing holds. When you when you take your Grigri test at the gym, you also have to s- fill out a questionnaire like, is it ever okay to put grease <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> on on climbing holds? Can we just admire for a second the emboldering if one were to put their hands on the start holds of your problem without even chalk on their hands, that would be akin to like walking into their house and taking a dump in the middle of their living room or something. Like, it's just like (laughs) such an offensive thing to do is to like put your greasy unchalked fingers on someone's holds on their boulder problem. And and so this is just like, uh, this is just on such a different level from that. Well, and we do contribute grease. Well, at least, uh, I mean, I don't. I'm a dry firer, so <laughs> I'm not contributing any grease to these boulders. But yeah, we already are, like, in a sense, greasing them. But I think hand grease is a little less. I, I, I definitely don't think it's like taking a dump in someone's living room. But if someone <laughs> put their gnarly, disgusting, whatever that toenail disease is, toenail fungus disease, feet, that they've been like wearing their flip flops to the crag for like two weeks and haven't bathed and definitely don't wash their feet when they bathe. Anyway, on my project, I would cut them. <laughs> <laughs> difference would... being that if, if someone took a dump in your living room, you would, you would, you know, ban it from the house and clean it up. But uh, yeah, I would just would bust out the shop back. Them. Yeah. But, but I probably would <laughs> not cut dry. them. I guess it would just depend on the intent. Like if they just had, they just got back from India and they couldn't help themselves. I'm not going to hold that against right. them. Right. <laughs> so the BLM did get involved. Um, this is roadside bouldering uh, in the in the corridor. That's BLM land. So have they been out there? Like, w- what's been the interface? Or has, has that been the the Friends of Indian Creeks zone? You aren't you aren't uh, uh, in the in the FOIC anymore, are you? I am. Yeah, I'm still on the. Board. Oh, you are. Yeah. Oh wow. I thought yeah. they had to kick you off after a certain amount of time. You, yeah, you have to time you... out for a while and then you can oh, okay. get back on and then um, right. they'll have you. And okay. and then I've got another time out coming up shortly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we were on the FOIC together uh, many, many years ago. But yeah, so what was the interface with the BLM like? I have not directly interfaced with BLM. I've talked to some personnel uh, because, you know, I have friends uh, in the BLM who are climbers. And... I think they've been kind of cool with letting the climbers spearhead the cleanup effort because they don't really necessarily have any better ideas about what's going on or how to how to manage it. And yeah, they've just been letting the climbers kind of take the point position and then they offered the ransom slash reward for any information that could lead to solving this mystery, finding the the perp. What do you think the chances that's going to happen? I feel like if no one knows now, it's really hard to imagine that there's information out there right now. Now, maybe some point five years down the road, some guy gets drunk around a campfire or gal and is like, oh, yeah, that one time I smeared grease like cream cheese on those crimps at Big Bend. Could happen. It could happen. Well, the thing that's, I, I mean, in this day and age, it's like, I feel like they did video it and like, do you know what I mean? Cause people just can't help themselves anymore. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's on someone's so like, phone. Yeah, it's on somebody's phone. You are, are you willing to share any of your theories about this person, your profile? Uh, well, part of the thing is like, you know, how much attention do we want to draw to this in like positing theories? And then like someone's listening. They're like, that's not what my goal was. And my message didn't get out there. So then... <laughs> Your you message I mean? sucks, so um, and if you're listening to this, fuck you, <laughs> and uh, that's all I have to say about that. Or they get off on the fact that, you know, it's even anything. We're definitely talking about this person like a serial killer. Right. You know, this is all, all from the same playbook of, the, of, the, of like the FBI and the serial killers. Yeah, escalation. This, is, this has become a true crime podcast. Yeah, so I, I think that we we could probably um, usurp cereal in the Apple Top Podcast <laughs> playlist. I mean, if this um, if this person were a climber, it sounds like they might they might have been, but they were a climber who wanted to just inflict maximum kind of pain on the climbing world for some reason. When they have chosen to do like chaos and circus tricks and some other of the more classic problems instead of the ones that were chosen. And so that was, that would be my one point there. And so I, I find the the problems that were chosen for this crime to be rather interesting or telling. So I don't know what you think of that. Well, have I ever told you my theory about how dystopian novels are playbooks for, for alt-right <laughs> leaders to, to use as their, as their, as their goal for domination, but um, I don't. I don't want to really. I don't want to give anyone any ideas. Yeah, for I all, hear you. For all we know, they thought they did that. Right. You know, but I mean, those problems might not be on like our routine circuit, but they kind of are. You know, like they're not just like some grovel, nothing problem or whatever. You know, I, I don't really know how to describe that, but no, they're good like, problems. They're like classic problems. It wasn't like they were like, terrible problems. I was just right. saying like. It's just really curious. I don't know. It's just, it, it seems both random, but also premeditated and very deliberate. Personal. Yeah. And therefore somewhat Personal. local, if that's the case. And there's like, the history of Moab is not without its, its misanthrope, you know, climbers. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think sets a lot of that kind of climber off to is, is in fact the crowds and, and the, the crowding of their formerly pristine personal areas and things like that. So who knows if it came out of something like that? Yeah. I mean, the the funny thing is, is that of all the seasons of big bend that I've weathered this one, it, there was not like a big local kind of scene going on there this year. Oddly right. enough, like even like in my immediate group, it was kind of a little bit more like, Oh, well we could just climb on the, on our grasshopper slash, Moonboard slash tension board slash lattice board, which is what everybody does now because they all built them. And it has not really been like a really thriving scene out there this year. Like there's never cars in the parking lot just until recently, you know, just in time for the grease. So maybe it was someone trying to like ward off the pending crowds. But I was out there um, this time last year and I had a conversation with someone who I don't know who it is, but he was griping about the the you know the local boom in march and late february that comes around every year and you know just hating on the crowds that kind of show up starting right about now yeah i mean it's definitely a thing and 
it is going to every week now it's going to just pick up and pick up and pick up. But overall, I'd say the past few months, it's been really mellow out there. And not a lot of us have been out there to kind of monitor what's going on all the time. So, you know, like usually, you know, like, oh, yeah, some dude rolled up and did problem X, Y, Z. But none of us really were that tapped in. We're going to need crag cops now. That's That's the future of climbing is crag cops. Crag cops, crag cops, what you gonna do? What you gonna what do? What you gonna do when they come for you? <laughs> well, you know, you're, I think you're Chris Kalouse about... should be a, a crag cop. <laughs> I could be a very good crag you, cop. You could do um, a good PC principal impersonation. Oh, what? You have to look that one up. That's a. Okay. It's a, it's a very non deep dive into South Park. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but um, you know, you being worried about us, like creating more problems by talking about it is I think is interesting because one thing I, I instantly thought of is just like how vulnerable this resource is. And, and I think bouldering specifically and um, you know, big Ben being roadside and being right next to this campground and all these sorts of things, you know, just re- you know, you realize like if that person had wanted to go a little more whole hog and, make a little noise they could have started beating those holds off with a hammer um and 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 finished it up you know so there it's we go kind with the dystopian because, novel oh, playbook sorry. oh sorry they're, they're finish, like, it. Oh, finish it <laughs> but you know what i mean like it's kind of wild because i mean you know like a, a a rock climb let's say with a rope the person would have to like you know go through the trouble of getting up there and getting a belay or hanging there or whatever and it's like yeah they could just roll up no problem and and I mean, the, the the deed, what, could have taken a minute and they could have slunk away into the night kind of a thing. It's it's sort of mm-hmm. scary, really. It is kind of As scary. As you said, a yeah. dystopian thing. This also ties into what we've been talking about, Chris, over the last year about how when climbing just gets popular enough, there's, you know, one out of 10,000 people is going to be a demented psycho who does, you know, stuff like this that you just can't account for and... um I don't know yeah. what else there is to say about that, but there's demented psychos out there in the climbing world. So I guess we need crag cops. <laughs> Andrew, I think um, you should go to the Utah legislature and propose a bill um, to see if we could get funding for that. They would definitely fund that. If there was guns involved, they would be like, yes, we can do yes. that. Yeah, they I'm, have to be I, I can't do that because I'm a crag relationship uh, counselor, but... Um, but maybe well, but is, maybe after you know, I get fired from that job, I'll be didn't a you get cop. another certification recently too? What was the last show you got? You certified uh, yourself an expert in something else. I don't know. I, I certify myself in expertise in various subjects depending on the time of day. And um, nice. Yeah. I mean, we joke about crag cops or whatever, but there are a lot more people recreating than there are people to keep an eye out for someone doing something really heinous. You know, ripping through cryptobiotic soil in their OHV or damaging climbs or what, whatever it might be. There's just like a lot of people and not a lot of protection. And we've always gotten by in this world by most people not wanting to do something psychopathic. So, Lisa, um, if we end up turning you in after this episode <laughs> airs, we'll split the money with you. Sweet. Three ways. 
I could <laughs> I could have lost a lot of money today with that three hundred and thirty three dollars invested in the Dow Industrial. Um, I would just suggest that the cleaning process is not going to be an overnight thing. That's pretty clear at this point. The holds still are holding grease up. They still smell of grease. And it's actually probably going to be beneficial to like pat some chalk or some bentonite clay or diatomaceous earth. I think it's going to be a combination of cleaning and then trying to extrude the grease with with things like chalk. But if people can just maybe stay off the holds or be just pay attention to what the cleaning process is. And if we've just gone out there with like 10 gallons of water and dish soap, stay off that for 72 hours or whatever, like pay attention to the signs that we have out there because it's going to be a process. My theory is it's going to take through summer and that the hot baking, scorching death orb of summer in Moab is actually going to help to bake off and um, evaporate off some of the residual petroleum. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty like, again, (laughs) putting this in your playbook, but, um, you know, that particular axle grease, you know, if that's what it is or any any heavy grease like that, I mean, that's its whole purpose is to not is to not fall apart under, you know, heat and, and water and everything else. It's, have you been to big bend in the summer, Chris? So yeah, it's like for sure. But I mean, yeah, I know. But then an axle heat, you know, friction and an axle heats the fuck up too. So no, I mean, I'm sure that that's going to help and, and, and maybe even, you know, draw it deeper to where it's no longer on the surface and, and not a problem for us. But, um, but it was a kind of a, uh, you know, again, like just thinking about someone, if they were premeditating it, actually thinking through some sort of concoction that would do the most permanent kind of fuck up to it. Um, they, they kind of did a pretty good job. I mean, again, short of actually destroying it. So, but it's just a weird, I mean, cause that, that the reason I, I, I just assumed it was like this kind of momentary act of some, you know, the same type of dickheads who, who deface a, a, a petroglyph is because of that. I was like, yeah, they had the laying around. They just walked over there from the, the campground and, fucked it up with a couple beers in their hands and then went back. And, but now that I've talked to you, I'm just like, my God, you know, there's this, there's this psycho like guy out there who's, who's like, you know, in his lab, like working on the best thing he could possibly do, but to achieve a certain thing, you know, again, he, he didn't want to destroy it. It, I don't know. It's like he had this like really thought out like uh, you know Unabomber type presence here of like I have this specific political goal to achieve and this is how I'm going to achieve it. It's I don't know. That's it's, why we you, need I'm to just make swimming in all these thoughts. That's why you know? we need to make Big Bend as crowded as it's ever been this season. Otherwise, the terrorists win. They right. will not keep us away from the boulders. We will go. We will fight back. We will climb at Big Bend. I I think I remember Andrew one time at Big Ben saying, I literally hate this climb. (laughs) I won't mention which one it was because I I don't want to contribute to the dystopian playbook, but it's one of my favorites. (laughs) So now we have two suspects on this very show. Well, what about you? 
What about me? I don't have even you go ever, there. Have you, exactly. who's, a, who's a person most likely to have axle grease in their truck at all times? That's of the three of us. I don't know. You, Lisa's you, right there with I me. But you kind of fit the profile though, because you get you know you're like, damn it, I am sick of going to Moab, and all my friends just want to go to stupid Big Bend, and I want to go down. <laughs> yeah, that's true. To and Creek. I do go there and get my fucking ass kicked too, because I'm terrible boulderer. So yeah, I guess it. it if it comes from like a spite area, that it could be me. It could have been me. I think we just have to like drop our profiles and put them in sealed envelopes and put them in like an escrow holding kind of situation. <laughs> and then if this ever gets solved, we can we can open the envelopes and see who, see is, who is closest. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a cold February night, and Chris Caloose was camped out at the Big Ben Boulders. He walked over and saw destruction, the likes of which he'd never seen before. I'm practicing for cereal. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Ed Feely is one of a few climbers ever to have flashed V14. He's also one of the founders of Beastmaker, a UK-based hangboard company. His new book is Beastmaking, a finger's first approach to becoming a better climber. You and Shauna were um, part of, I guess you could call it like a post-Olympics baby boom. I think we talked about this briefly on the... (laughs) On the on an earlier episode, but I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Yeah, it's hard I'm, to call it a boom. It's like you know, five or fewer couples, but um, you know, some prominent, strong ladies yeah. <laughs> and and gents, uh, you know, deciding to have kids after after the big Olympics debut. Yeah, we were saying the other day the the comp scene in sixteen or seventeen years might be quite interesting, <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> Second generationers will be cranking it out then yeah well i mean i guess brooke and sean were the, the kind of first of that lot of second mm-hmm. generation comp climbers and they're both mm-hmm. amazing aren't they so maybe our kid will hate climbing and want to play soccer or something <laughs> or video games <laughs> yeah well, there's more money in it <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know since you guys are largely both boulders it's it's a, a relatively seamless transition from to family life i'd say of all the of all the climbing disciplines yeah i think so it's been nice to be in fun and kind of i've been friends with staying with us and they have two young kids under five so they were doing the whole kind of family bouldering and we were kind of going out with them and helping out with the kids and it was just quite nice to see that it's totally possible and i think you're right i think bouldering and well i mean we live in the uk it rains so we'll be climbing indoors won't we no bother (laughs) even easier <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like soft play well and except so Ned, for the you know the the occasional needle and used condom i think that font is like one of the <laughs> one of the premier like kid crag kid bouldering crags too you know what i'm saying yeah you have to pick your venue so they don't get aged but otherwise <laughs> don't go to the one the one there on the highway what's the name of the one that's right off the highway Bas- there? Cuvier. Like, Bas- yeah, Cuvier, the classic yeah. like yeah oh look daddy i found a balloon <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there'll be, there'll be better venue choices in fun. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Um, I, um, okay. I, I thought your, uh, I also have to say that I thought your baby announcement with the beast maker in training or whatever it was, uh, was, was quite, <laughs> was quite cute. Yeah. Um, that was all her idea, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so beast, beast maker, the company is your other baby. And how long has that, yeah. <laughs> is that, is that still a baby? How long have you, how long has beast maker been around? It's been at least 10 years yeah. now, I would imagine. Oh, probably nearly 15, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, pro- so, um, yeah, I'd say about fifteen. And uh, you just came out with a book that we're going to talk about today. Um, that's a pretty comprehensive guide to training. And so, um, you know, I reached out to our our fans on social media to get some questions about training that they have. I thought that'd be a good way to structure the interview. But um, yeah, maybe you could just like start off by telling our listeners how um how you've come to know anything there is to know about training and finger strength and and what your what your background is that allowed you to write this book i've just always been interested in training and trying to kind of improve and i guess there's a, a big scene for that in the uk so it's always been part of climbing in in the uk and kind of you know there's the whole schoolroom and all that sort of stuff and Everyone trains, it rains a lot, blah, blah, blah. So it's a massive part of our climbing culture, and I've always been really interested in it. And I guess since I was a teenager, I've been really into training myself, trying to get as good as I can. So I guess just trial and error over 20 years, 25 years I've been climbing, it sort of led me to a point where I felt like I kind of knew a bit and I could maybe write something down that was helping the people out. That's an interesting um, uh, point you just made or just hinted at about the the culture of training in the UK being kind of weather-based for lack of, you know, uh, given the rain and so forth, you, you end up spending a lot more time inside. And um, it just reminded me of something that Nathaniel Coleman told me last year. Um, I asked him why the Japanese climbers were so good. And he said his theory was that the gyms in Japan don't have memberships. And so you have to buy a day pass every time you go in. And so he, his kind of sense was that, you know, when you're spending whatever it is, 20 bucks to, to go climb at a gym, every time you need to train that you, you want to make the most of it and, you know, get the most bang for your buck, so to speak. And so it lends itself to, uh, there's just kind of a financial incentive that's tied to, you know, putting in that extra 10% um, of effort. Yeah, I, I think having having climbed in the, in the Japanese gyms, it seems like also, I mean, this is sort of off topic from what you asked, but it seems like it's almost a cultural thing in Japan where it's really important to people to, to put their absolute maximum into something that they're doing. And they don't want to just roll along and be all right at it. If they're going to go climbing, they're going to be as good as they can be at it. And I think they have that kind of culture and also the gym set for that as well. So they'll have, you won't have a load of easy climbing and then a couple of hard boulder problems. It's basically all really hard. So if you're going to turn up, you're projecting something really hard until you do it. Whereas certainly in the UK, we have probably 80% of the boulders in there are really easy. And then you have 20% that are a bit harder. But in Japan, it's probably like 10% are easy and the rest are absolutely desperate. Well, I think it just like speaks to the importance of culture as a you know as a conduit to improving yeah. your training, um, which is an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, I think so, and it's definitely something that 
I mean, from the days of Ben and Jerry, they were massive on training. And that's kind of what everyone knows the UK for, really, is those old school guys and dingy training rooms and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's a huge part of British climbing. And it's a part of climbing that I've always really liked as well. I like the kind of DIY training at home sort of setup that we always used to have. Now the, all the big gyms are opening, so it's changing a little bit, but ultimately you can do a lot of training at home still. And I think for most people, that's the really beneficial bits of training are the things they can fit in at home. So was that um, something of an impetus to get into it professionally, start this company that was going to provide equipment? And was that sort of like seeing this uh, this need for you know, a home setup that's simple or, or um, you know, growing on this idea that you have your own dingy, <laughs> you, know, you have this place in your house where you've got your stuff. Is that, you know, wh- where did the impetus come to uh, to dip your toe into actually providing equipment and making a, a company that, that lives in that space? When we started it, we were students, so we, we were poor. And we, uh, we liked to, basically, we, if we trained at home, we could do it for free. Whereas if we went to a gym, we had to pay. And if we went out to the crag, we'd have to basically pay for petrol to get there. So it was a lot of it was that we trained at home because it didn't cost us anything at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and then also back then, there weren't really any good fingerboards, hangboards available, certainly not wooden ones. So that not a lot of people were really fingerboarding at the time. And there weren't really many products that are any good. So we, we made one for ourselves. And then friends thought, oh, I'd like one of those. So then we made a few more. That's kind of how the business started and snowballed. But initially, it was just wanting to make something that we wanted to train on. We were really into it, and there wasn't anything else around that was sort of suited what we wanted. Yeah, it's interesting because it's it you know it's like anything like the internet or anything. It's like it feels like these hangboards you know in the world, all the different comp- have always been there, and it's it's uh yeah, it's interesting to remember that this was you know this was an actual innovation not that long ago. This idea of a home hangboard that you bought, I made one. Oh man, it must have been the late '90s, actually, with a router right. and a piece of oak, you know. And it was right, like yeah, heinous. Yeah. It was like <laughs> absolutely fucking heinous. I I wonder if it still exists in the sh- in the shack that we lived in, but right. know, it was all sharp. You know, I didn't really know how to use a router that well, and I think I used a jigsaw and all these sorts of things to make the, all these like crappy holds. I had like a bowling bolly set up oh, where I just yeah, drilled classic. four five holes. That whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's all anyway, but it, it's cool that um you know you took a, a you probably first ones you know were were pretty rough and similar until you started to refine the process and and what worked and what didn't work. Can you can you talk a little bit about that about the evolution of you know your first ones to a to a product that you were um happy to uh to sell? Yeah, so originally Dan the the other guy that started it mm-hmm. with me, Dan and I would make just make things by hand. Like you said, I mean, we didn't go for the old bowling ball of pockets, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we were, you know, we always, we'd always be fiddling around with ideas of different stuff you could hang on. Or basically finger strength, the most important thing to work. So it seemed like if we could find a good way of training that good apparatus, then that would set us up really well. So we we're always fiddling around with ideas, we just slowly kind of whittled down what we thought was important and what was unnecessary on the fingerboard. Cause a lot of them had kind of random, strange holds on that kind of weren't that useful for training they were just there it's almost like someone decided they were going to make a fingerboard didn't think any more about it and made one and they they weren't really that usable whereas ours was sort of coming we made it coming from the fact that we wanted it to be usable 
Um, so all the holds on it were kind of put on for a reason and they're all in the, hopefully the right places. And so basically trial and error, a bit of fiddling around. And then we came up with an idea that we were happy with and we trained on for a mm-hmm. bit. And then we thought, well, this is decent. Let's make it. And at that point we had quite a bit of interest in friends. So we knew we'd sell a few, but production was <laughs> absolutely tiny. But it just kind of snowballed, and over the years, we had to produce more and more as it kind of spread. Um, firstly, a bit around Europe, and then over into the US, and now it's kind of all over the place now. Do you feel like you're, um, you know, the stuff that you came up with, because um, it was pretty early in the scene, um, has influenced um, what other manufacturers are doing? Um, yeah, you could say influence. You could say people mm-hmm. just rip us off. <laughs> but, <laughs> But, you know, you, you can be flattered by that, can't you? Or you could be angry about that. But no, I think I think ultimately you've just got to hang on to something that's comfortable, haven't you? So there's not, yeah. you know, there's not a lot to it. And I think there are a lot of people out there that are capable of making things that are nice to hang off. So it's kind of, yeah. Well, I, I think we were maybe the first company to make one that was successful. It doesn't mean it's sort of everyone else is, is copying ours because it's ultimately you just make mm. it a thing you can hang off. Yeah. yeah. We don't we don't feel bad about it, but I do feel like we were kind of one of the early ones. We got in there pretty early and that's that has done us really well. That I mean that's the thing I like about your board is that it is comfortable to hang on and you don't really you know, it's not um pain like uh the transgression board or something like that is just like one of the most <laughs> brutal things you could ever touch. It's like <laughs> grabbing a grabbing a Ginsu blade. Um, but yeah, it's nice. They're, they're nice holds. And I, I I can't really remember at the time what other boards there were. I remember that Metolius board was like a really popular one, uh, with a million holds on it. But, um, yeah, but yeah, it was, I, I, I do recall, uh, the beast makers being, you know, just kind of, um, different in that sense that they were, they were comfortable to grab. One thing you alluded to earlier was um, just your kind of evolution as a trainer or just as a as a person who's interested in training and understanding the theories and philosophies. And, you know, one of my gripes about this uh, pursuit or profession, I guess it's you'd call it now, is that it just so it, there's so much of it that's just trial and error. And there's so much of it that people are sort of borrowing from other sports and uh, training ideas and just trying to like apply them, you know, swap out like reps for Russian deadlifts to, uh, you know, to reps for <laughs> hangboard repeaters or something like that. Yeah. And so it does seem like a bit random and it doesn't seem like it's the most scientific, you know, thing there is. Um, I'm curious to get your take on how do you, how does one know who is an, an expert or guru worth listening to and versus one who, you know, it's just kind of talking out of their ass. I think you're right. It is all trial and error. And I, there was some line I wrote in the book that was about when anyone's doing science on climbing training currently, you get to the results and it basically just backs up what you kind of knew anyway. And that, you know, there isn't really a, a way of training. Climbing's way too complicated to have a way of training for it. And everyone's so different, aren't they? So certainly the contents of the book it was more about kind of describing the the basics to people and giving them a really good idea of how it all works and letting them decide what's going to work for them um i mean anyone that buys a spreadsheet training plan and follows it i mean yeah you'll probably improve slightly but it's not going to be the best way for you to improve 
unless you've got a coach, unless you have someone telling you exactly what you need to be doing all the time, which means having them there with you constantly, then, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, you're never going to improve as fast as you possibly could. It's just, it is all trial and error, sadly. All right, let's um let's drill down onto some like uh, specifics. I, I just wanted to start with a very basic question, but and you kind of address this in your book, but um it's it's a basic question, but it's an it's not an obvious answer, which is what is finger strength? Because it's not immediately clear where strong fingers come from. Is it muscles? Is it ligaments? Is it what is it that makes a finger strong? I mean. Stuff like that I thought was really important to cover because, you know, most people, they couldn't tell you how the body works in that regard, could they? They couldn't tell you what's going on when you grab a crimp. Um, So it felt really important to kind of explain a bit of background there. But, I mean, basically, you've got the muscles in your forearm that will flex your fingers, and they help you to grab on. But then also you have all the, the tendons and the pulleys in your fingers that create friction when you grab on. So that gives you more extra gripping power over what your muscles can apply. That's kind of how it works. And when you're training your fingers, you, you're training both the muscles and all the connective tissue to thicken and get stronger. It's kind of two parts going on. But yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of people just think, well, I don't know what they think. Forearm, fingers? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's not necessarily that obvious, is it? What what goes on and how you get strong fingers. What is it about the ligaments that needs to be thickened in order to create, you know, better grip strength? I, I, I don't, that part doesn't make sense to me. I think basically as they thicken, um, you get more opportunity for a kind of frictional interaction when they're loaded. So if you're crimping and you've got a load of load going through the tendon that's running through a pulley, if the pulleys are a bit thicker and the tendons are a bit thicker, then there's basically more friction between them, which means it's harder for them to unravel. And also thicker thicker pulleys are less likely to explode when you're climbing hard, which I think is really handy. So I think that's, you know, that is a part of it as well, is getting them a lot more sort of used to putting load through them and less likely to break. Because that that was another thing that I thought was important to explain, is that training isn't just about getting stronger. Training is about being more injury-proof. So as you go climbing, you're less likely to damage yourself and have to have time off, which a lot of people kind of miss that side of it out. You know, if you're injured and you can't climb, then you it's rubbish isn't it we've all been there and it's rubbish so if you can avoid that then you're better off and by doing some training you can kind of well you can you can make your body more adapted to climbing and less likely to get injured yeah let's dwell on that for a second what's the uh what's your approach or philosophy to making your body more injury proof well i mean regarding the fingers if we're talking about those a lot of it's just about continued load my uh a physio friend of mine that helped with bits of the book he always says tendons don't like surprises so his, his idea is that if you're always loading a tendon or constantly loading a tendon, it's going to be way more happy than if you pull really, really hard, have a week off, and then pull really, really hard again. So a lot of the kind of, in terms of protecting your fingers, a lot of that is just about regular loading, regular fingerboarding, regular steep climbing. Um, and that, I think that is a lot better for people than absolutely hammering themselves one day until they're completely trashed and then needing a week off, having a week off, and then doing it again. Yeah, just to go back to what we were talking about with this the kind of folk uh, folk training advice that kind of percolates out of you know, <laughs> trial and error. I remember, you know, one of the very first pieces of training advice I ever heard was in the Rock and Snow gear store in New Paltz, New York, where I started climbing in high school at the Gunks. And um, some guy was in there 
talking about his approach to training, which was that anytime he walked through a doorway, he would grab on to the the top of the door and hang from it. And so it was just kind of this way of moving through life where he would, you know, be constantly loading his, uh, his crimpers anytime he passed through a doorway. And there is something to that, you know, that, you know, makes kind of intuitive sense. And now here we are in this, in this world where, you know, training has gotten advanced enough where we're arguing about whether repeaters should be six seconds on and four seconds off or seven seconds on and three seconds off as if that uh that's one second could make a crucial bit of difference which you can tell me if if maybe it, it does but um I don't, it's an interesting interesting to just kind of think about that that kind of progress in terms of this profession and yeah philosophy i, I, I think there's progress but equally i think there's almost too much data and too many voices on it now to the point where if if you're not entirely sure what to do and you want to find out it's it is really hard because there's just so much noise. So, I mean, that, that was the idea with this book is to try and pick out the really important stuff and lay it out simply. So you don't have to go on Google and get totally bombarded with a million different things, most of which might help you improve, but you don't know. They might injure mm-hmm. you, but you don't know. <laughs> it's just such a minefield. So I, the whole purpose of this was to lay out a few of the, the more basic things that are correct and that will help and just make it simple because most normal people, they don't want to go Googling something for 10 hours a day. They don't want to get home from work, open a book and think, Oh, I'm going to do that. Get it done. Have you guys ever ripped off um, a friend's uh, shoddy molding when hanging from a doorway? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as you casually walk through that door and like hang from it and all of a sudden it goes bang and the freaking piece of wood rips off. So anyway, back to that guy in New Paltz's philosophy. He probably lost a lot of friends um, ripping their molding off around their door. (laughs) (laughs) I did it at my my parents' house, actually. I I (laughs) remember trying to to sand one down on the slide because my parents didn't want me to hang on it. So I had to sand it down on the slide so it wasn't quite as sharp. So I, I have a question about, um, you know, these basics and, and if, if you address this in your book or if you can address this now, but, um, you know, coming from a background that I didn't train, you know, one of the kind of running conceits on this, this uh, show is that it, it's a recent thing for me and getting over that hurdle of thinking I needed it and or, you know, some people are really drawn to it. It sounds like you were, Ned, um, and it became just this thing that you enjoyed as much as climbing outdoors or as much as projecting or, you know, it, it really fit into your life. And I feel like there's a real dividing line between people who like training is fun and natural for them or and people who have to sort of force themselves to do it, like eating their broccoli and, and you know, and people who just can't can't figure out how to motivate themselves to do it, even though they want to and want to improve and understand that it, it would help them improve. Um, so do you address that at all about, you know, making a mental switch to making it part of your climbing routine? And if there are any tricks to, uh, to doing that, because I'm plenty of our listeners are, are in that camp that I was in, which is like, God, I just, it's really hard for me to go into a gym and not just goof around and have fun on the boulders when this other thing seems like uh seems like a bit of work yeah well i mean i think the, the main trick to that is just doing something for long enough that you see progress because i think for most people i mean anyone that goes climbing they like they like to see progress and they like to see improvement i think so 
if you can stick to something, even if it's just one exercise or one thing, if you can stick to it just long enough that you see that you've improved and you can see a knock-on effect to your climbing, and then that provides so much motivation to want to go back for more. Whereas a lot of people, they they won't initially do that kind of repetition of something. They'll, you know, they'll pull on the campus board once and they'll wander over to something else. But I think initially you just need to be quite strict with yourself to do something a number of times, enough that you see an improvement. And then from there you get, I think you get loads of motivation from seeing that you've got better at something. Yeah, so I mean, it, I think one of the things that, that has been effective is this idea that, yeah, a little bit of hangboarding can go a long ways. You know, I even had this conversation just the other day with a, a friend of mine who's climbed as long as I have, you know, and I was going to go over and do my hangboard routine. And he kind of had this idea that the rest of the climbing session was over because I was going to be over there for like two hours or something, <laughs> you know, and I was like, no, today it's eight minutes. I mean, my routine is eight minutes and that's it. And I'm, and I'm like, then I'm done for now. And, you know, and I, I think that's been really helpful to me to, you know, I've done more involved programs, but this idea that just routinely throwing a few minutes at it here and there can actually yield results is, is I think a good hook for people. And it doesn't have to affect the rest of your climbing day, does it? You can, you know, you can do your very short amount of fingerboarding and afterwards you're still good to go, really. And you can mm -hmm. even do it before you go out to the crag. So it doesn't, yeah, it's not one or the other. That's the thing. It's, your climbing can be more or less exactly as it is. And you can just add these little training bits. Stretching is a great one as well because you can always fit some in. I think you very quickly see improvement. But I, I think also people like you that have come to training quite late, but probably have a lot of climbing time under your belt i think you're in a perfect position because any amount of training and any sort of physical improvement that you have will instantly transfer to your climbing because all your other skills would be so highly tuned already um you know it's not like you're a beginner that doesn't know how to move or climb that's suddenly going to get really strong so i think little and often for for people that already know how to climb is a really amazing sort of combination and formula for, for making a better climber we started this conversation, I don't know how much will stay in the interview people heard, but we were talking a lot about your impending uh, fatherhood. And, uh, you know, and that's been a real in interesting part of my last five years is how easy it is to fit in training versus going out and rock climbing when you've got a kid and you've got a, a job and all these other things. You know, we're not 19 and just going to the gym whenever we want to. But, um, but yeah, so it's been kind of interesting, that part of it too, is how easy it is to actually fit it in. Um, and it's just like anything. It's like, you know, you can sit there and moan about it, but once you start doing it, it does fit into your life pretty seamlessly. And your business is basically like, you know, putting a hangboard above a door in your house and you're, you're, you're off and running, you know? There's no reason why people can't fit really useful training in and around all the rest of their life. And I mean loads of this book was aimed at normal people that have a job you know if, if you can go climbing every day then you just would do that wouldn't you you know if you could go out <laughs> climbing any day any time you just that's what you'd do you wouldn't worry about training the training is kind of i mean it's more for the the everyday person that wants to get a bit more from climbing when they do go out so um we just uh spoke to chris's situation of having lots of experience and and then coming to training and seeing you know being able to transfer that in strength to uh, his climbing quite seamlessly. But what's the opposite scenario with um, a beginner who, you know, could stand to just learn how to execute climbing technique flawlessly. And do you recommend hangboarding and, and 
kind of more spe- training specific exercises for that type of person? I never like saying to someone that's a beginner that they shouldn't touch a fingerboard because I think it, it could have its positives. But I think you just stand so much to learn as a new climber by just going climbing, just doing the mileage. That I mean, that's really good fun as well, isn't it? So I think if you're new to climbing, you should just spend as much time as possible climbing and moving. Ultimately, climbing is so complicated. You need to learn all these kind of odd moves and movement skills and strength can come after that. But equally, I mean, I, I think if you're very careful with it and you kind of you're sensible with it, there's no reason why a beginner can't also hang on a fingerboard. Let's do some uh, listener questions and we can make these as short as you want. They could be rapid fire style or you could you can extrapolate for 45 minutes if you would like. Um, <laughs> so one person asked, what's more effective, max hangs or repeaters? And they want to know if you can train both at the same time. So, and that doesn't mean the same session, but like over the course of a week, you know, doing one day of max hangs and one day of repeaters. Yeah, neither is more effective. If if one was more effective, then that's what everyone would do. You know, there, there wouldn't be a need for the other one, would there? So neither is more effective. They're both useful to do. And I don't think there's any reason not to do them at the same time, you know, within the same sort of training period. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason not to. In fact, it's probably quite a good thing. It gives your body a bit more varied stimulus. I was just going to say, there's definitely not a best way of fingerboarding. No, I mean, or of doing any training, because if there was, that that would just be the way at this point. Mm-hmm. We we do seem to have kind of drilled down on Max Hangs and Repeaters as being the two best that we've come up with of all the all the styles. And um, I mean, I, I, I struggle to think of what else there would be, but it is interesting that those kind of two exercises have become the you know risen to the top of. The hierarchy is there is there anything else i'm missing is there another exercise that deserves to be up there with those two well i mean basically all you're doing is hanging off off holds aren't you so yeah <laughs> no you, you can vary how long you do it for and you can vary how much you rest but ultimately you just need to be hanging off some holds um, <laughs> and and doing it you know and th- yeah but is- how did you get a whole how did you get a whole book out of that then is it why is it just a pamphlet <laughs> <laughs> it's just a propaganda well, poster. It's a, it's a post-it note that you put <laughs> yeah. on your on, on your just hang. Next, on your wall. See, lots just hang, of, dude. Lots of the pages are empty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the the people, the climbers that become the best, are the ones that put the most time in and and do the most. And I don't think the best climbers in the world are particularly concerned about exactly how many seconds they're hanging on for, but. They're, they are concerned about turning up all the time and training and going climbing all the time. So I think that's, that's the really important part is that you're actually doing it and you're not worrying about the thing. You're just doing the thing. Yeah, I think that's good advice. So how do you think about adding weight versus going down to a smaller hold size? <clears throat> uh, I think that's I mean, a lot I'm of uh, a common, common question a lot of people have, which is should I be adding weight or should I be you know, hanging off of smaller holds? Yeah, again, I'm going to be annoyingly on the fence and say <laughs> there's not, there isn't a correct answer. I mean, the problem with adding weight is that eventually you have so much hanging off you, it's really uncomfortable. And the problem with hanging on smaller and smaller holes is that eventually you're hanging on such small holes, it's really uncomfortable and your skin is basically the limiting factor. So it depends exactly what you're training for. If you want to train for a climb that's on incredibly thin micro edges, then you probably want to be hanging on really small holes. 
Um, if you're looking at getting stronger, then you probably want to do a combination of hanging on really small holds and hanging on bigger holds with weights on. But at the extreme of either of them, it becomes really horrible. So you, you just need to find the balance. Also, doing both is good. It's good to put loads of weight through a bigger hold and it's good to hang on smaller holds because they load your fingers in slightly different ways. Yeah, so a few years ago, I, I remember interviewing Shauna about life and climbing and she she mentioned that campusing was something that she wasn't didn't do strictly speaking she would just campus on problems and boulder problems and do different kinds of holds and stuff like that and um and i'm curious if that's still her philosophy and approach and um what your approach to campusing is if if you favor the using rungs or you prefer that kind of more freeform approach of just going up and down any holds you can I think campus boards are they are quite a dated uh, bit of training apparatus. Um, and I, I don't think they are any better than, well, no, actually, I think campusing on holds is, is a lot better than campus rooms. There's, I mean, there is a bit in the book about that. And it, yeah, basically, climbing footless is really good for getting your upper body going and stronger. And I think you want to be doing that on the, the biggest range of holds that you can, rather than just being stuck on the same edge. Um, it's a lot better on your skin because you're not just hammering the same hold size constantly. And it's a lot better for your strength because you're holding on to different things, you're moving in different directions, you've got to use momentum in different ways. And you can't, on the campus board laddering, you, you do sort of learn the movement and strength gains are maybe a little bit more limited. Whereas if, you, if you're climbing on problems without your feet, you're doing an infinite number of different move types. So I think there's a lot more to be gained from doing that. Um, what's one thing that most climbers get wrong about training? I think a lot of people just aren't consistent enough with it. I think that's the most important thing is if you decide you're going to train then just be consistent with what you're doing, doing it for a couple of weeks and then getting bored isn't really going to lead to any improvements, but doing something for six months or a year, you you will see improvements in the last. So I I think mainly it's the kind of the boredom threshold slash consistency that people miss out on. I think you've got an interesting view into just really elite level climbers, you know, being around Shauna and your, yourself um, and just the people that you've either trained or worked with. Curious to know what your thoughts are on just the limits of human performance on in climbing. Like, are we, are we getting close to, you know, kind of the upper edge of difficulty that we can expect from the sport? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think, Climbers still have a long way to go, but I think the limiting factor is finding rocks that are suitable. I think that's going to become the issue. And it's perhaps a little easier with sport climbing, but I think finding boulder problems that are in the kind of 9A and above grade is just, I mean, it becomes so difficult to find them and to find them in a place where someone can actually go and try it for a decent amount of time in the year. I think that is more the limiting factor than people's strength. Um, and I think, well, in terms of strength and ability, I think people are going to keep improving. I mean, the, some of the kids that are emerging now are absolutely incredible and can only see that going faster the more people get into climbing and the more people we see sort of turning up at the crags. So I think the the limiting factor will be just finding the right climbs for them. You know, again, we we started talking about the impending birth of your of your child, you and Shauna both, it's going to change your life in so many ways. But it's interesting to me that 
you know, you are talking to this set of climbers that you, um, you've mentioned the, you know, these people who have jobs, have lives, how they fit training into, into it all. So what are your, you know, what are your discussions between the two of you about, uh, you know, what the future holds with, um, adding this responsibility to your life that's going to be really time consuming things are going to change but i think we can still both climb at a level that we're happy with and both enjoy it um you know we've been really lucky that the last 20 years we've basically been able to be quite selfish with our time and do whatever we want climbing wise so we're not particularly bothered that we'll have someone else in the mix <laughs> and you know maybe maybe we'll have a bit less time to do stuff maybe we can't travel as much yeah, I don't know. It doesn't mean we'll stop climbing or stop training or stop loving it, I don't think. It's quite exciting to see what it brings. Does the runout make you want to pile in the backseat, generate steam heat, pulsate to the backbeat? Then do as the venerable Ramones once advised, maybe. And hey-ho, let's go sign up for the Runouts Patreon. When you become a Runout Rope Gun at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast, you'll be breathing punk rock fire straight into the belly of the runout and getting bonus material like Jordan Cannon's continued conversation from episode 76. During my Kraken Classic tour, I had multiple people give me their numbers like on stickers or a flyer or something that they handed to me at you know, the event or my clinic or whatever. And nothing like that has ever, ever <laughs> happened to me before. And I'm getting well, inundated with Chossy DS. It all just felt normal. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was just cool that it just felt normal or like the fact that we can even be talking about this now and it kind of feels normal. Have now. you gotten That's any dick pics? been the biggest change for me. Dude, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> okay, so this is what we talked about the other day. If you want to know... <laughs> if you want to know the nitty-gritty nitty about the, the yes, gay please. climbing world. So sign up today at patreon.com runoutpodcast because DIY is as punk as it gets. On today's final bit, we once again feature former guest and final bit contributor Chris Parker. Chris is a climber, father, and musician living out of Park City, Utah. You can find more of his recorded music on Spotify under Christopher Parker. This new one is called Passing Through. All right, let's run it out. And now I'm only passing 
started to unravel on this path of dirt and grab alone step by step I'm coming on to you but for now just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris Kalus, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pot.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Give us some money.